You are listening to LearnOutLoud.com's production of Spiritual Classics. Collecting key excerpts from a wide range of religious traditions throughout human history, this podcast is dedicated to showcasing the core teachings of the world's greatest spiritual thinkers. For more inspirational and educational resources, please visit our website at www.LearnOutLoud.com. The Variety of Religious Experience by William James Published in 1902 From Lecture 16 on Mysticism Over and over again in these lectures, I have raised points and left them open and unfinished, until we should have come to the subject of mysticism. Some of you, I fear, may have smiled as you noted my reiterated postponements, but now the hour has come when mysticism must be faced in good earnest, and those broken threads wound up together. One may say truly, I think, that personal religious experience has its root and center in the mystical states of consciousness. So for us who in these lectures are treating personal experience as the exclusive subject of our study, such states of consciousness ought to form the vital chapter from which the other chapters get their light. Whether my treatment of mystical states will shed more light or darkness, I do not know, for my own constitution shuts me out from their enjoyment almost entirely, and I can speak of them only at second hand. But though forced to look upon the subject so externally, I will be as objective and receptive as I can. And I think I shall at least succeed in convincing you of the reality of the states in question, and of the paramount importance of their function. First of all, then, I ask... What does the expression mystical states of consciousness mean? How do we part off mystical states from other states? The words mysticism and mystical are often used as terms of mere reproach, to throw at any opinion which we regard as vague and vast and sentimental, and without a base in either facts or logic. For some writers, a mystic is any person who believes in thought transference or spirit return, Employed in this way, the word has little value. There are too many less ambiguous synonyms. So, to keep it useful by restricting it, I will do what I did in the case of the word religion, and simply propose to you four marks which, when an experience has them, may justify us in calling it mystical, for the purpose of the present lectures. In this way we shall save verbal disputation and the recriminations that generally go therewith. Ineffability the handiest of the marks by which I classify a state of mind as mystical is negative. The subject of it immediately says that it defies expression, that no adequate report of its contents can be given in words. It follows from this that its quality must be directly experienced. It cannot be imparted or transferred to others. In this peculiarity, mystical states are more like states of feeling than like states of intellect. No one can make clear to another who has never had a certain feeling in what the quality or worth of it consists. One must have musical ears to know the value of a symphony. One must have been in love oneself to understand a lover's state of mind. Lacking the heart or ear, we cannot interpret the musician or the lover justly, and are even likely to consider him weak-minded or absurd. The mystic finds that most of us accord to his experiences an equally incompetent treatment, Noetic quality. Although so similar to states of feeling, mystical states seem to those who experience them to be also states of knowledge. There are states of insight into depths of truth unplumbed by the discursive intellect. They are illuminations, revelations, full of significance and importance, all inarticulate though they remain, and as a rule they carry with them a curious sense of authority for aftertime. 
These two characters will entitle any state to be called mystical, in the sense in which I use the word. Two other qualities are less sharply marked but are usually found. These are transiency. Mystical states cannot be sustained for long, except in rare instances, half an hour or at most an hour or two, seems to be the limit beyond which they fade into the light of common day. Often, when faded, their quality can but imperfectly be reproduced in memory. But when they recur, it is recognized, and from one recurrence to another it is susceptible of continuous development in what is felt as inner richness and importance. Passivity Although the oncoming of mystical states may be facilitated by preliminary voluntary operations, as by fixing the attention or going through certain bodily performances, or in other ways which manuals of mysticism prescribe, yet when the characteristic sort of consciousness once has set in, the mystic feels as if his own will were in abeyance, and indeed sometimes as if he were grasped and held by a superior power. This latter peculiarity connects mystical states with certain definite phenomena of secondary or alternative personality, such as prophetic speech, automatic writing, or the mediumistic trance. When these latter conditions are pronounced, however, there may be no recollection whatever of the phenomenon, and it may have no significance for the subject's usual inner life, to which, as it were, it makes a mere interruption. Mystical states, strictly so-called, are never merely interruptive some memory of their content always remains, and a profound sense of their importance. They modify the inner life of the subject between the times of their recurrence. Sharp divisions in this region are, however, difficult to make, and we find all sorts of gradations and mixtures. These four characteristics are sufficient to mark out a group of states of consciousness, peculiar enough to deserve a special name and to call for careful study. Let it then be called the mystical group. The simplest rudiment of mystical experience would seem to be that deepened sense of the significance of a maxim or formula which occasionally sweeps over one. I've heard that said all my life, we exclaim, but I never realized its full meaning until now. When a fellow monk, said Luther, one day repeated the words of the creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, I saw the scripture in an entirely new light, and straight away I felt as if I were born anew. It was as if I had found the door of paradise thrown wide open. This sense of deeper significance is not confined to rational propositions. Single words and conjunctions of words, effects of light on land and sea, odors and musical sounds, all bring it when the mind is tuned aright. Most of us can remember the strangely moving power of passages in certain poems read when we were young, of rational doorways, as they were, through which the mystery of fact the wildness and the pang of life stole into our hearts and thrilled them. The words have now perhaps become mere polished surfaces for us, but lyric poetry and music are alive and significant only in proportion as they fetch these vague vistas of a life continuous with our own, beckoning and inviting, yet ever eluding our pursuit. We are alive or dead to the eternal inner message of the arts according as we have kept or lost this mystical susceptibility. Even the least mystical of you must be convinced of the existence of mystical moments, as states of consciousness of an entirely specific quality, and of the deep impression which they make on those who have them. A Canadian psychiatrist, Dr. R. M. Buck, gives to the more distinctly characterized of these phenomena the name of cosmic consciousness. Cosmic consciousness, in its more striking instances, is not, Dr. Buck says, simply an expansion or extension of the self-conscious mind with which we are all familiar. 
But the superaddition of a function as distinct from any possessed by the average man, as self-consciousness is distinct from any function possessed by one of the higher animals. The prime characteristic of cosmic consciousness is a consciousness of the cosmos, that is, of the life and order of the universe. Along with the consciousness of the cosmos, there occurs an intellectual enlightenment, which alone would place the individual on a new plane of existence, would make him almost a member of a new species. To this is added a state of moral exaltation, an indescribable feeling of elevation, elation and joyousness, and a quickening of the moral sense, which is fully as striking, and more important than is the enhanced intellectual power. With these come what may be called a sense of immortality, a consciousness of eternal life, not a conviction that he shall have this, but the consciousness that he has it already. It was Dr. Buck's own experience of a typical onset of cosmic consciousness in his own person which led him to investigate it in others. He has printed his conclusions in a highly interesting volume from which I take the following account of what occurred to him. I had spent the evening in a great city with two friends, reading and discussing poetry and philosophy. We parted at midnight. I had a long drive in a hansom to my lodging. My mind, deeply under the influence of the ideas, images, and emotions called up by the reading and talk, was calm and peaceful. I was in a state of quiet, almost passive enjoyment, not actually thinking, but letting ideas, images, and emotions flow of themselves, as it were, through my mind. All at once, without warning of any kind, I found myself wrapped in a flame-colored cloud. For an instant I thought of fire, an immense conflagration somewhere close by in that great city. The next... I knew that the fire was within myself. Directly afterward there came upon me a sense of exultation, of immense joyousness accompanied or immediately followed by an intellectual illumination impossible to describe. Among other things, I did not merely come to believe, but I saw that the universe is not composed of dead matter, but is, on the contrary, a living presence. I became conscious in myself of eternal life. It was not a conviction that I would have eternal life, but a consciousness that I possessed eternal life then. I saw that all men are immortal, that the cosmic order is such that without any peradventure all things work together for the good of each and all, that the foundation principle of the world, of all the worlds, is what we call love, and that the happiness of each and all is in the long run absolutely certain. The vision lasted a few seconds and was gone but the memory of it and the sense of the reality of what it is taught has remained during the quarter of a century which has since elapsed. I knew that what the vision showed was true. I had attained to a point of view from which I saw that it must be true. That view, that conviction, I may say that consciousness, has never, even during periods of the deepest depression, been lost.'